Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Think Cap Trivia Podcast. My name is Kevin, and it's my pleasure to be your host. I've decided to start this show to give anyone wanting some extra trivia content and outlet to listen to, even after quarantine when we're all able to be together again at our local pub trivia contests. But my goal is that even when the world is back to normal, Think Cap will become your go-to podcast to supplement your trivia knowledge and to help you learn a little bit whenever you choose to listen. So for those of you tuning in for the first time, let me go over how this podcast is structured. At the beginning of the show, I will pose a couple of trivia questions to you and give you a few moments to think of your answers. Then I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and the history or data or some fun facts behind the answer. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I'll give you a brief breakdown that hopefully will satisfy all of your curious minds while also entertaining you with my banter. My hope is that by listening to ThinkCap, you will be able to gain knowledge about not just a single question, but about different details surrounding the question. After last week's themed show for the holiday, we are back to general trivia this week, so you can expect questions from all over the place. You never know what you're going to get. If you're a fan of my show, I ask you to please tell a friend or a fellow trivia lover about ThinkCap. Getting the word out there about the podcast really helps me to grow my content. I also ask that you follow ThinkCap at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow along on Facebook with the same name. I post content there and updates and maybe even some merch giveaways are going to be posted in the coming of weeks, so be on the lookout for that. And with that being said, let me once again welcome you to ThinkCap and let's get this show started. Like I mentioned before, I've got a couple different questions for you today. And what I'm going to do is read each question for you, give you a couple moments to think about each one, and then go through and break down each question one by one. So sit back and relax and let me read these questions for you. Question number one. What famous movie character called Skull Island his home? Once again, what famous movie character called Skull Island his home? Question number two, roughly 550 people have ventured into outer space, but how many did not make it back? Once again, roughly 550 people have ventured into outer space, but how many did not make it back? How many people have died in outer space? Question number three. What large feline native to Central and South Asia is sometimes called an ounce? Once again, what large feline native to Central and South Asia is sometimes called an ounce? Question number four. In a game of professional darts, how many points does a player start with? Once again, in a game of professional darts, how many points does a player start with? 
Question number five. What make of car do the B-52s hop into in their song Love Shack? Once again, what make of car do the B-52s hop into in their song Love Shack? Question number six. What happened to anyone who touched the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible? Once again, in the Bible, what happened to anyone who touched the Ark of the Covenant? Question number seven. Vanilla flavoring is derived from what flowering plants? Once again, vanilla flavoring is derived from what flowering plants? Question number eight. What was peculiar about Ernest Vincent Wright's famous 50,000-word novel? Once again, what was peculiar about Ernest Vincent Wright's famous 50,000-word novel? Question number nine. Who was the highest-drafted Canadian-born player in NFL history? Once again, who was the highest drafted Canadian-born player in NFL history? And question number 10, our last of the podcast. What is the name of the largest volcano on Mars? Once again, what's the name of the largest volcano on Mars? All right, so now that I have read all of your questions for you and given you a few moments to think of your answers, like I said, I'm going to start reading each question one by one, and I will give you a little breakdown. So here we go. Let's get started with question number one. And question number one was, what famous movie character called Skull Island his home? And your correct answer is King Kong. The first King Kong film was released in New York City on March 2nd of 1933. It was universally acclaimed by critics and a sequel was quickly made and came out just the following year. In total, there have been 12 King Kong movies produced, with 10 being made in America and 2 being Japanese productions. The popularity of these films has caused the franchise to expand to books, video games, music, and other forms of media. The enormous gorilla remains popular to this day with the 2017 film entitled Kong Skull Island making over $560 million worldwide. The original concept uh, for the film was imagined by Marion C. Cooper who had become fascinated with gorillas at just the young age of six. In 1899, he was given a book from his uncle called Explorations and Adventures in Equatorial Africa. The book was written in 1861 by Paul du Chaillou and chronicled the adventures and encounters with the native people and the wildlife in Africa. Cooper was particularly fascinated by the stories about the gorillas. In fact, there was one gorilla noted in the book that was known for its extraordinary size. The native people described it as invincible and called it the king of the African forest. Later in his life, while working on the film, The Four Feathers, 
and working with a family of baboons for the film, Cooper had the idea to write a terror gorilla picture. He would say that he actually envisioned the end of the movie first, uh, picturing in his mind a giant gorilla climbing a skyscraper and later deciding on hashing out the backstory to flush out the rest of the film. Altogether, this means that there was one particular gorilla that lived over 150 years ago and an explorer who documented his travels, which both inadvertently inspired one of the most iconic film franchises on the planet. Question number two was, roughly 550 people have ventured into outer space, but how many people died in outer space? And your correct answer, out of that 550, your answer is three. Yes, only three people have actually died in outer space. And while there have been about 30 astronauts and cosmonauts who have died in training, or while attempting space missions, their, most of their deaths, anyway, occurred below the Kármán line, which is the accepted boundary of space, lying about 62 miles uh, above sea level. For reference, there is uh, very little difference between an astronaut and a cosmonaut. Uh, cosmonaut is the accepted term for people trained for spaceflight in Russia, while most of the rest of the world uses the term astronauts. Russia chose this name for its space explorers to differentiate between themselves and the Americans. They chose the prefix cosmos, which means ordered universe, as opposed to the Americans who used the prefix astron, which means star. But anyway, it was after the first moon landing during Apollo 11 and the Apollo 13 mission that on June 30th, 1971, the first humans actually passed away in outer space. The first space station to orbit Earth's atmosphere was the USSR's Salyut 1, which launched into space unmanned on April 19th of the same year, 1971. Just a few days later, a crew of three Soviets docked onto the space station, only to find that the entry hatch would not allow them to enter. They were able to turn around and prematurely return home safely. But on June 6th of that year, another group of three cosmonauts took off for the Salyut 1 and were able to successfully board the space station. They spent three weeks performing experiments on how the human body experiences extended periods of weightlessness actually setting the record at the time for the longest time that a person has spent in space consecutively. On their way home though, there was a faulty valve seal which opened during the spacecraft's separation from the rest of the module, and all of the air was sucked out of their cabin, which depressurized it and killed the men before they ever had a chance to even remedy the problem. Now the eerie part about it too, is that the Soviet ground crew had no idea of their team's fate. There was no sign of outward damage to the vessel, and it actually was able to return to land without incident. But only when they opened the cabin door did they find out the fate of the cosmonauts. They had no idea what had happened um, to those ill-fated uh, cosmonauts. But as a result of this tragedy, the USSR now requires all cosmonauts to wear pressurized spacesuits during re-entry to Earth, um, as does uh, pretty much every other space-exploring country now. 
but it's a practice that's still in place to this day. And question number three was, what large feline native to Central and South Asia is sometimes called an ounce? And your correct answer is the snow leopard. Snow leopard is the right name. And the English name ounce uh, is derived from the old French once, originally used for the European lynx. Ounce itself is believed to have arisen by falsely splitting from an earlier variant of lynx, which was l'once, where l'once, spelled L-apostrophe-O-N-C-E, um, where the L is the form of the French la, which means V. So some people took the name to be the ounce, leaving ounce as just the perceived animal's name. And likely the English version ounce came to be uh, used for other lynx-sized cats and eventually for the snow leopard um, as just a der derivation of the name. But as stated in the question, the snow leopard is native to Central and South Asia, living chiefly in alpine and subalpine zones where elevations are between 9,800 and 14,800 feet. Genetically, they are in the genus Panthera and are most closely related to tigers, with evidence estimating that early snow leopards hybridized with lions and leopards during their evolutionary path. The animals today are on the vulnerable list, meaning they are not yet considered endangered, but may become endangered in the future. The reason for this, much like other animals, is a combination of both poaching and habit destruction. While some farmers will kill snow leopards in order to protect their livestock, interestingly enough, snow leopards often won't even defend themselves from attacks and are rather easily driven away from livestock fields. There have not been any reports of snow leopards attacking humans, making them, documented-wise, the least aggressive towards humans of all big cats. Question number four was, in a game of professional darts, how many points does a player start with? And your correct answer is 501 points. Modern darts was invented by a carpenter from Lancashire named Brian Gamlin in 1896. However, the history goes back much farther. Darts actually began as a military pastime originating in England during the medieval era in the first couple of decades of the 14th century. The development of Gamlin's numbering system can be attributed with being one of the most impactful changes to the game of darts, and through it the game gained even more popularity and even recognition as a sport. Since the game originated in England, it is not surprising that the most prestigious of its leagues would be the British Darts Organization, and consequently the rules from the BDO have been used as the almost international guidelines for the game. The board is placed so that the middle of the bullseye is 1.73 meters or 5 foot 8 inches above the ground, and players stand behind a raised horizontal block called an oki that is 1.5 inches high, although in casual play, pretty much any mark on the ground will do. The front of the oki should be 7 feet 9 and a quarter inches from the front of the board. Players alternate turns uh, trying to throw at the dartboard and when they get a dart on a certain number value, that number is actually subtracted from their score of 501 
and the goal is to be able to reach or excuse me to reach zero fastest. So that is the actual game of darts. I know it doesn't seem very intuitive um, for those of you who had never played, but it's actually pretty exciting to watch, and it's quite an event if you ever find it on TV. The people over there in uh, England definitely get very excited to watch their favorite dart players, players, throwers, uh, perform the sport. And that brings us to question number five, which was, what make of car do the B-52s hop into in their song, Love Shack? And your correct answer, the car, was a Chrysler. Chrysler is the right answer. The lyrics to the opening verse of Love Shack are, quote, and we're heading on down to the Love Shack. I got me a Chrysler, it seats about 20, so hurry up and bring your jukebox money. The, the single was released on June 20th of 1989 as a single off of their 89 album, Cosmic Thing. The song is probably the most recognizable by the group and acted as a resurgence of sorts in popularity after they tapered off uh, from popularity in the mid 80s. It was the group's first top 40 hit and peaked at number 3 on the US Billboard Hot 100 and was named Best Single of 1989 by Rolling Stone. The song was inspired by a cabin around Athens, Georgia, where the band conceived another popular anthem of theirs, Rock Lobster. And question number 6 was, in the Bible, what happened to anyone who touched the Ark of the Covenant? And your correct answer is that they would die. They were struck down dead. The Ark of the Covenant was a gilded wooden chest that contains the tablets given to Moses, which had the Ten Commandments inscribed on them, and it acted as an embodiment of God's physical presence with the Israelites. Now, it's worth noting that in the Old Testament, God is seen as a much more wrathful and punishing uh, figure than in the New Testament, where he becomes more of a loving father figure. And although this seems inconsistent with what God is or should be, like why would the creator of the universe have a character change, it can instead be looked at via a metaphor of fire. So fire can burn and fire can be destructive. But fire can also give warmth and comfort. It all depends on where you stand in relationship to the flame. But anyway, the cover of the Ark was essentially God's throne, and as such, if someone were to approach the Ark, they would be approaching God himself. The Bible says that God does not tolerate evil, so any sinner standing before God would die as a result of their sins. Because of this, God had given the Israelites many rules concerning the Ark of the Covenant. It was kept in the most holy place in the temple and was hidden from view by a curtain. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place, and then, only after he had undergone ceremonial cleansing, made sacrifices to atone for his sins and the nation's sins, and burned incense to conceal the atonement cover. Um, when the ark was moved, it was covered with at least three layers of cloth by the priests to protect others from seeing it, and priests carried it and everyone else had to stay about a thousand yards away. These laws enforced the concept of God's holiness. Basically, sinful people couldn't be in his presence, and not even the high priests. And as such, there were many instances in the Bible where folks came into contact with the Ark and were struck down dead on the spot. Question number seven. 
was vanilla flavoring is derived from what flowering plants? And your correct answer is orchids. Orchids is the right answer. The vanilla orchid came from Mexico, which was the sole producer of vanilla beans for centuries until the Aztec Empire fell to Hernán Cortés and vanilla pods were brought back to Spain, which introduced the beans to the rest of the world. Growing the plants proved to be very difficult for non-Mexicans, though. It took until 1836 when Charles Morin, a Belgian botanist, discovered the key to pollinating the plants. He realized the importance of Mexico's tiny, indigenous bee called the Meliponia, which is the only insect that symbiotically evolved to pollinate the orchid flower. Then, in 1841, on a small island east of Madagascar, Edmund Albius developed an efficient method for fertilizing vanilla flowers by hand. This allowed the product to be successfully grown in regions outside of Mexico. This method was perfected over time, with Madagascar eventually becoming the world's top producer of vanilla in both volume and quality. Vanilla is grown in regions within about 10 to 20 degrees of the equator. It's kind of just in those warm zones right around the center of the earth. And due to differences in soil composition, pollination and growing methods, and curing methods, Vanilla beans have different flavor profiles depending on where in the world they are grown. If you're a wine connoisseur, I'm sure you are familiar with the idea that grapes grown in different areas produce different types of wine. It's kind of the same way with vanilla beans. Vanilla beans grow green on the vine and they're harvested when their tips begin to turn yellow. The curing process where the beans are separated and spread in the sun during the day and then stored together in conditioning boxes during the night is what gives the beans their characteristic brown color as well as their flavor and aroma. And as I said, this process has slightly different techniques in different parts around the world. It really is a neat subject to learn about, especially for a word in vanilla that also is defined as having no special or extra features or being ordinary and standard. Question number eight was what was peculiar about Ernest Vincent Wright's famous 50,000 word novel? And your correct answer is that it did not use the letter E. A lipogram from the ancient Greek term to leaving out a letter is a kind of constrained writing or word game consisting of writing paragraphs or longer works in which a particular letter or group of letters is avoided. The letter E is the most commonly used letter in the English language, with just over 11% of all English words containing the letter. Not only that, it is the most used letter in a lot of different languages, including French, German, Spanish, Italian, Swedish, Danish, and Dutch. In addition, 250 of the 500 most commonly used words in the English language were still available to write despite the omission of the word E, but if you look at this from the flip side, that means 250 of the most commonly used words were not available to write. Wright says that his primary difficulty was avoiding the ED suffix for past tense verbs. He made extensive use of verbs that do not take the ed suffix 
and constructions with do for example he somebody did walk instead of somebody walked Wright said in his introduction to the book, which was entitled Gadsby, I should have mentioned that earlier, that, quote, this story was written not through any attempt to attain literary merit, but due to a somewhat balky nature caused by hearing it so constantly claimed that it can't be done, end quote. Legend has it that he actually tied the E key on his typewriter down while completing the final manuscript so that his finger wouldn't slip and he was physically unable to accidentally put the letter E into his work. Despite this, somehow the 1939 uh, publication by Wenzel Publishing Co. contains four slip-ups with the word THE on pages 51, 103, and 124 and the word OFFICERS on page 213. A 2007 post on the Bookridge blog about rare books says that a warehouse holding copies of Gadsby burned down shortly after the book was printed, destroying most copies of the unique and underappreciated novel. The book's scarcity and oddness has seen original copies priced at auction from between $4,000 to $7,500 by book dealers. Now, Wright died actually the same year of the publication in 1939, so he never really got to know how much some people would appreciate his efforts. And personally, I've never read the book myself or challenged myself to write a lipogram, but after looking into this story a bit, it does seem like it'd be a pretty fun and creative challenge. Question number nine was, who was the highest drafted Canadian-born player in NFL history? And your correct answer is Tony Mandarich, who was taken second overall by the Green Bay Packers. In 1989, Sports Illustrated called him the best offensive line prospect ever coming out of Michigan State. However, there is a reason that you may not have ever heard of him. And that is that four of the first five picks in the 1989 draft, the draft he was selected in, are in the Hall of Fame. Troy Aikman, Barry Sanders, Derek Thomas, and Deion Sanders were the other four picks in the top five. Now, Mandarich was originally from Ontario, Canada, where he was a standout in his high school years and was actually recruited by Michigan State's defensive backs coach, not as a defensive back, but he was recruited by this coach, and you might have heard of him. His name's Nick Saban. Yes, Nick Saban was the defensive backs coach at Michigan State during the time. And Mandarich did end up having a successful college career at Michigan State. He played in the 1988 Rose Bowl. He was named a first-team All-American, and he was a two-time Big Ten Lineman of the Year. Sports Illustrated ran a pre-draft cover story in 1989 about the 6'6", 330-pound lineman, which dubbed him the Incredible Bulk. Three years later, though, he was once again on the cover of Sports Illustrated, this time labeled as the NFL's Incredible Bust. He struggled mightily, and the Packers released him just three years into his rookie four-year deal. He had attitude issues, uh, was a bit too big for his own good, and in a 2009 interview, he actually admitted to using steroids while at Michigan State to boost his performance 
and claimed that his failure in the NFL was partially due to his addiction to painkillers and other substances. So, I mean, logically, you can look at this. You have this player who is touted as one of the greatest uh, prospects of all time, and it was mostly probably due to the steroids, you could assume. But because he got in that cycle of using substances, he ended up in the trap of painkillers and all those kind of things. And he kind of got himself into a mental hole that he really just couldn't break himself out of. He was out of the league for five years, actually, after the Packers released him. But in that time, he went to rehab, and he was actually able to return to football and play for the Indianapolis Colts from 1996 to 1998. He actually started all 16 games at tackle in that 1997 season before he ended up retiring the next year due to a shoulder injury. And again, based on that 2009 ESPN interview, it seems that at this point he's doing much better um, in his life than he was during his fluttering NFL career. And that's always good to see. You never like to see a player, you never like to see a player at the top of their game fail anytime, but especially due to substance abuse and those kind of things. So it is good news that Mandarich is doing better and that he is honest about his NFL years and his failures. And that brings us to question number 10, which is, again, our last question of this podcast. The question was, what is the name of the largest volcano on Mars? And your correct answer is Olympus Mons. Olympus Mons is actually not just the largest volcano on Mars, but actually the largest known volcano in the entire solar system. Its base has an approximate diameter of 374 miles, and it stands an astonishing 16 miles high. For reference, that diameter is the approximate size of the state of Arizona, and that height is about three times the height of our tallest mountain, Mount Everest. Olympus Mons is located in the Tharsis region of Mars, where volcanoes are typically 10 to 100 times larger than those found on Earth. The lava flows observed on the Martian surface are much longer than ours as well, which is probably a result of the higher eruption rates and lower surface gravity. One main reason why volcanoes on Mars are so much larger than Earth's is that the crust on Mars doesn't move around in the same way that it does on Earth. On Earth, the hotspots remain stationary, but the plates of crust move above them. As the plate moves over the hotspot, new volcanoes are formed, and the existing ones become extinct. This distributes the total volume of lava among many volcanoes rather than one large volcano. The existence of the Hawaiian Islands are actually a direct result of this phenomenon, but on Mars, the crust remains stationary and the lava just piles up into one extremely large volcano. This phenomenon has resulted in Mars becoming the home of some of the largest volcanoes in the solar system, and without a doubt, the largest that we know of in Olympus Mons. And now that brings us to the end of our show this week. If you've made it this far, I thank you for hanging out with me, and I hope that you learned a little bit. If you enjoyed the show, uh, we ask that you play, please rate and review, uh, subscribe, follow on whatever streaming platform you're listening to us on. That really helps us out when you guys do that. 
In addition, earlier I mentioned ThinkCap's social media platforms, and I always love to hear what you guys want to learn. So if you have any fun trivia facts or there are any questions pertaining to a certain topic that you would like me to talk about, please leave that in your feedback or comment on any of ThinkCap's social media posts. Um, So again, thank you for listening. I will catch you next week and take care.